You can open your Bible to Acts chapter 16. We'll look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Acts chapter 16. Let's pray and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we come to you, uh, as we always do, asking for your help, that uh, you have sent your word. Would you send us your spirit now to uh, illuminate our minds as we come to your word? We pray that you would um, dive deep into our hearts with your grace and do a great work there this morning. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. Paul also came to Derby into Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week we looked at um, what's referred to here, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. It was the Jerusalem Council, right? Acts 15, we looked at the first part of the chapter. Uh, Legalism was creeping into the church already um, and causing problems. And the problems were primarily in the form of uh, Judaizers, what we call them, uh, teaching Gentiles, non-Jews, that they needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. The apostles and elders gathered together to debate the issue, and they concluded that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And, um, And they decided to write a letter to the Gentile Christians, the churches that have been affected by this false teaching, this legalism, Uh, encouraging them in this letter simply to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And in the last part of the chapter, uh, which we didn't look at last week, uh, Luke records the the content of that letter, and he tells about Paul and Barnabas and some others that were sent out to take that letter to the Gentile churches. And when the churches received the letter, uh, and they learned that they didn't have to keep the law of Moses after all in order to be saved. Uh, it, it says in verse 31 of chapter 15 that they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Um, that may be an understatement, right? We don't have to be circumcised. Dodged a bullet on that one, you know. Um, <clears throat> more significantly, though, than the physical pain associated with that, uh, more significantly, it was a celebration of God's grace, right? God's grace uh, through Jesus. His grace is sufficient for our salvation. You don't need to add anything to it, right? Once you add something to it, you lose it entirely. You just need to rest on his mercy through faith. And that's cause for deep joy and real encouragement. And it's said that the churches were strengthened during this time. It says it three times in the space of a few verses. And that's a pattern that we see in this section. Paul returned to the churches that he had planted on his first missionary journey. He went back there, shared the letter with them, proclaiming their freedom from the law, their salvation in Christ, and they were encouraged and strengthened in their faith. Uh, So now in our passage, he's revisiting the South Galatian churches. So it says in uh, verses 1 and 2, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. 
A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So here we meet uh, young Timothy for the first time in the New Testament. Uh, He's probably converted on Paul's first missionary journey um, through the area, probably converted along with his mother and his grandmother. Um, And Timothy becomes quite a prominent figure in the New Testament. Uh, He gets a lot of mention. Paul dragged him along with him uh, on his missionary adventures. Uh, Paul left him in charge of church plants. Paul sent him out to churches as his representative. Uh, Paul co-authored letters to several of the churches with Timothy and wrote two of the pastoral epistles directly to Timothy. Um, so he's, he's a prominent figure in the New Testament. Uh, Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, were Jewish believers. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that they had raised him reading the scriptures, right? What we have is the Old Testament. Um, they'd raised him reading the scriptures even though his father was a Greek. Right, and uh, was most likely the one who prevented him from being circumcised at, um, at, at eight days old, like you're supposed to be <laughs> if you're a Jew. Right? Um, because of this, because his father probably prevented him from being circumcised, even though Timothy had an excellent reputation among the Christians, which is an indispensable quality for uh, ministry leadership, the Jews would have viewed him as an apostate Jew, maybe even as an illegitimate child. Um, And so, verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, uh, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Uh, Now, this is pretty amazing if you've tracked with the flow of Acts to this point, right? Uh, John Stott says, "It, It is really marvelous that so soon after Paul's hot indignation over the Judaizers in Antioch, and his vehement statements against circumcision in his letter to the Galatians, that he should now be prepared to circumcise Timothy. It really is marvelous. It's amazing. Paul has been fighting tooth and nail against Jewish legalism that expressed itself predominantly in circumcision, right? And here he turns around and circumcises Timothy. What's he doing? Is he backing off on the issue? Is he giving in? Flip-flop, you know? Um, no, he's, he's viewing circumcision quite differently from the Judaizers. The Judaizers were requiring it and the keeping of all the law of Moses uh, for salvation, to be right with God, right? They insisted that God accepts us only if we keep his commandments. And that uh, detracts from God's grace in Jesus Christ. So Paul was against that. Right? The rite of circumcision had already fulfilled its purpose. Historically and theologically, it's already fulfilled its purpose. Purpose: The uh, circumcision is the, the cutting away of flesh, which symbolizes the cutting away of sin, right? Our sin nature. Uh, it was a picture of being set apart from sin for holiness. And as a picture, just a picture, physical, tangible picture of it, Uh, It was ineffective in itself, right? In and of itself, it didn't work. It was always meant to show that what was really needed was a circumcision of the heart, right? A spiritual matter. We need sin to be cut away from our inmost being and for our souls to be made alive and sensitive to God, right? 
And that's something that God has to do for us. God has to remove our sin and make us alive and make us holy. And if we're not truly circumcised in heart, then we stand under God's judgment, which is what we read about in in the Old Testament reading from Jeremiah chapter 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are merely circumcised in the flesh. And then he lists nations that are either prone to circumcision or uncircumcision. He lists them both, right? Egypt, they don't circumcise people. Judah, God's own people, they do. Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, even though he listed Judah among them. All these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. And so I'm coming uh, to punish them. Right? Circumcision in the flesh doesn't fix uncircumcision in a heart. The problem is with our hearts. We're dead to God. We love our sin. We're holding on to it, right? We need to be circumcised in heart. And Jesus' sacrifice is the only solution for that problem, right? Jesus was punished by God as if he were uncircumcised in heart. Jesus was cut off from God as he bore our sin on the cross Jesus gives us the true circumcision of the heart made without hands, right? That's what Paul talks about in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 2. He says, In Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, the cutting off of Christ, right? Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. By his grace, God grants to us the spiritual reality of circumcision. Of heart, right? In our baptism into Christ, in our forgiveness of sins, and in the newness of life that we have by our regeneration. And God does this apart from the physical act of circumcision. Doesn't, doesn't need to use that. Gentiles don't have to do that. Right? For Paul and Timothy, then, circumcision was a matter of freedom, right? One was free to do that or not do that, according to one's preference. <laughs> Uh, but it had no effect on one's eternal salvation, right? Instead, for them, it became a matter of contextualization. Contextualization. Circumcision, in Timothy's case, was not salvific. It was strictly practical. Now, maybe that sounds crazy to you. I mean, Paul says himself in Galatians chapter 2 that even Titus, who is a Gentile, when, uh, when they traveled together to Jerusalem to the heart of Judaism... Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised, right? Um, But with Titus, it was a matter of principle. Paul was fighting the battle with the Judaizers, and he wouldn't give in to them with Titus, right? Uh, But then he turns around and circumcises Timothy, a half-Gentile, out of what might seem like fear of the Jews, right? Um, It's not out of fear. Paul was not much of a people-pleaser. Timothy uh, had the freedom to remain uncircumcised, And he didn't flaunt 
that freedom, right? Which admittedly would be a little awkward to flaunt in the case of circumcision. But uh, he wasn't going to make fun of those poor people who still think they have to be circumcised to be saved, right? He was being sensitive to the culture. And he uh, took action to remove the stigma that's associated with his apparent illegitimacy. And this facilitated the the mission team's acceptance in Jewish contexts. Paul and Timothy were really, at the heart of it, removing obstacles from the gospel, right? Obstacles to the gospel. This was an obstacle that only existed in these people's minds, in the Jews' minds. And for Timothy to remove that obstacle from them would actually mean suffering on his part, to accommodate himself to their wrong views. He's suffering to accommodate himself to their wrong views. And they weren't even the main target audience. Right? Paul was clearly ordained by Jesus to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And that's the regions that they're traveling in, Gentile regions. But he and Timothy also have a heart for their own people, right? the Jews even though they frequently meet with hostility from their own people. Timothy does this because he's unwilling to leave any barriers between the Jews and the gospel. He wants to remove all those obstacles because the gospel is offensive enough in itself. Right. Um, Paul writes to the Corinthians that the gospel message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's folly, it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But a lot of times, people use that as an excuse to be offensive to unbelievers. Oh, the gospel is offensive to people, so I can be offensive to people, right? We present the gospel in a self-righteous, condescending, offensive manner. Telling people, you're going to go to hell, you know, and that's our main message. (laughs) And we say, hey, the gospel's offensive to unbelievers, what are you going to do, right? Um, But that's not the gospel being offensive. That's you being offensive. And I've done it too. And that's not good. That's not good. We're supposed to be winsome and kind and gracious and loving in our presentation of the gospel. The gospel is offensive enough in itself because the basic premise includes the accusation of sin. Right? Jesus came and died for you. He had to die for you if you were going to be reconciled to God. There is no other way. Your sin is too serious. That implies that your sin is worthy of death. And there's no self-centered sinner who's not offended by that thought. The gospel is offensive enough in itself. There's no need to add more barriers by emphasizing our cultural or personal preferences. Right? Uh, Paul was in the business of removing all those barriers, whatever uh, it took to present the gospel in a way that people were forced to deal with Jesus and deal with Jesus without wrestling through all their other minor arguments, all my baggage along the way. In 1 Corinthians 9, which uh, shows up in the beginning of your bulletin in that reflection section, Paul writes this, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, 
that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul is willing to surrender his rights, surrender his freedoms, surrender his privileges, in order to remove obstacles from other people receiving the gospel. Sometimes it's a big deal to do that. For example, Timothy being circumcised. But he did it for the sake of the gospel. He did it for love. Paul writes in Galatians 5, You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We're supposed to use our gospel freedom for love. And we don't lose our identity when we do this. Right? Some say that Paul's a chameleon. He's lost himself. He must have no personality because well, he's always trying to please everyone else. Right? Uh, but, but Paul and Timothy aren't trying to please people. And they're not giving up their identities. Their aim is to please the one who has already given them an unshakable, eternal, blessed identity. Christians don't have the kind of freedom that gives them autonomy from God. They have the freedom of being owned by God. Being owned by God, being bought by His grace at the cost of His Son's blood. Christians, being owned by God, are granted an identity in Christ of being beloved sons and daughters of the King of the universe. And we have an eternity to look forward to as heirs of glory, heirs of the new heavens and the new earth, where, where all of our freedoms and joys will perfectly align with God's holy will. Whatever rights and privileges we would give up in his service now, we'll never lose that fundamental core of who we are in Christ. We belong to God, and nothing can ever change that. And self-sacrificial mission, as Tim Keller says, is for anybody who says, I belong to God. It's for anybody who finds their identity in God's grace, who finds their freedom in God's grace. So Timothy was circumcised, and he used his freedom for love in service to his Savior and his Lord. And it says in verse 4 and 5, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the, the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul and Timothy taught the grace of God that frees us from our sins, frees us from having to keep the law in order to earn God's favor. And Paul and Timothy lived that freedom out in a loving way. And the result, humanly speaking, was more effective evangelism. More effective evangelism. God grows his church, right? God's the one who's adding to the numbers of the church. And he does it through human agency. In this case, it was as stumbling blocks were removed all around. Gentiles were being told, you don't have to keep the law. It's all of grace. And Jews were being shown respect and consideration for their cultural views on circumcision. So, how can we remove stumbling blocks? By using our freedom for love 
even at great expense. Well, if you're surrounded by liberal neighbors, for example, um, don't put out conservative political signs in your yard, or vice versa, as the case may be. Right? Um, the purpose of yard signs and bumper stickers uh, often seems to be to polarize people around certain issues, right? This statement will make my type of folk say, yeah, and it'll make those other types of folk uh, provoke to argument and I'll make them feel bad because they're obviously wrong, right? That's, you've just made some non-gospel issue into a stumbling block, an issue that divides people and pushes people away. Yeah, don't do that. Or if your neighbors are all vegans, um, don't make a big show of grilling meat on your back deck in the barbecue, right? Um, and certainly don't joke about their food preferences. I made the mistake of doing that a few months ago. A neighbor, a fellow who has a business down the hall from the office, uh, took on a new employee who is a vegan. And um, I think it was like the first day I met her, I was just pushing jokes, pushing jokes too far. Uh, and thankfully, she's a nicer person than I am. And it seems like she's not offended by my stupidity. Um, but I raised that issue, even humorously, as a difference between us, right? You're a vegan, I eat meat all the time, right? I should have been trying to find a way to relate to her instead, right? She's free to eat what she likes, and so am I. I should not flaunt that freedom in front of her, right? Or make fun of her for being wrong in my mind, from my view. If we ever have her over for a meal, we'll gladly set aside our right to eat meat. And in fact, we'll even study a bit to be able to intelligently discuss the virtues or benefits of vegetarianism. If you live in Hillsborough, maybe you should learn to speak some Spanish. Take a class. Or some other language that might be common in your workplace. Give it some effort, right? Think about the demographics of your neighborhood and find ways to connect with common elements even if they don't naturally align with your own preferences. Make it your mission. It's a mission. Take time to think and learn about social viewpoints, about political viewpoints that are different from your own, not just to be able to tear them down easier. Right? Figure out what it is you can appreciate about those viewpoints without compromising your fundamental allegiance to the gospel. People are going to find things about you that are offensive to them. It's just a fact of life. Uh, pray that those things truly represent the gospel and are not just matters of your own cultural leanings or the exercise of your own freedoms or privileges. Paul and Timothy were imitating Jesus in giving up their freedoms for the sake of love. Imitating Jesus who truly became all things to reach all people. He was infinite God who took on finite humanity. The exalted one became humble and weak. The transcendent one became imminent Emmanuel, God with us. He became like us in every way, except without sin. He set aside his rights 
and privileges and preferences. He gave up his freedom and suffered for the sake of love to the point of death on a cross. And those who follow him are called to do the same. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have benefited greatly from your contextualization, your incarnation, your coming to be one of us. We've benefited, um, we've gained the salvation of our souls and eternal glory with you. And so we want to rejoice in that and for the sake of the gospel so that others might rejoice together with us, we pray that you would do a work in our lives that only you can do, and that's remove anything offensive about us, about who we are or what we've done, that we would uh, normally raise as obstacles and barriers and dividing walls between us and other people. We pray that you would remove those things, make the gospel the thing that we talk about and the thing that we cherish most and the thing that we most desire to share with other people, uh, even at the expense of our freedoms and our privileges. We pray that you would do this uh, in your name. Amen.